Tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections on this Pali word sadha, which is usually translated as faith or confidence or, or trust. And, and just so you know, I'll, I'll be using these words interchangeably. Sometimes I'll say confidence or trust or faith, but they'll all refer to this, this Pali word uh, sadha. And I'd like to begin with a story. Once upon a time, this is, this is when I was, uh, before I fully immersed myself in the kind of the, the Theravada Vipassana world, I, I think many of you might know, I, I lived in a Rinzai Zen monastic community for about six years. And after spending a bit of time there, my my faith really deepened, you know, in, in terms of a Buddhist path, and I got ordained. And it, it was a demanding lifestyle. I was just reflecting back on it and remembering it. It seemed like in the winter, I was too cold. In the summer, always too hot, especially in the summer, because you had to wear two layers of robes. And uh, we'd have a training period in the summer and the in the winter, and you'd, uh, the You'd wake up at 3 a.m. and you'd go to bed at 9.30 p.m. And our days off, sometimes the days off kind of explain the kind of the, the feeling of Rinzai Zen. So you get a day off a week, which was great. So you get up at 5.30 a.m., which was so sweet. It's like, woohoo, yeah, nice. And then, But you'd be in a, this formal schedule until right after lunch, and after every meal, well, not, not the evening meal, you'd have a... Uh, sorry, you'd have a, a, a just a, a, a brief tea ceremony in the in the meditation hall. So after lunch, maybe mm, one o'clock, your day off would be, be begin, and then it would end at four ten p.m. for the afternoon chanting. <laughs> <laughs> Those really good times, huh? <laughs> so it was as demanding. <laughs> And I, you know, when I, you know, for the first while, I, I really gave myself over to the lifestyle and the practice, really diligent. And then there was this time, I still remember the evening where I hit this huge wall in my practice. And I actually remember the specific evening I was uh, coming back from, uh, you, could, you could say, a practice meeting with a Zen master. And... I was just emotionally shattered. And what was so emotionally shattering about it is that, that I was just flooded with this huge doubt. And boy, did I get hooked by it. And I'm sure most of you have noticed the, the, that how, how doubt can weave the most convincing stories that feel so real. You know what I'm talking about? just has that, that ability to it. And the, the story that was coursing through my mind was something like, what the hell am I doing meditating for these long hours? And not only that, with a shaved head, wearing these strange black robes all the time. And not only that, being surrounded by other people who have shaved their head wearing strange black robes. <laughs> 
So is that looking outward and even looking at what I'm doing? And it just, it, it was not fitting at all in my mind. And then what came on top of that, maybe you've noticed something similar, was the I can't do this stories. The judgment and the shame. And it was this collision of this practice is not right and I'm not right. It was like I, I, I lost faith. That was the moment. It was like hitting a wall where I lost faith in myself and in the practice. And maybe some of you out there can relate to this challenging night I had. You know, the this doesn't work theme that might course through your hearts and minds at times. You know, I've been sitting here with this anger or sadness or restlessness and it still ain't going away. I can't relate to the teachings. I'm wasting my life here. My mind's still wandering over the place, all over the place. And then you do what I did. You start looking around the hall and you think, my God, maybe all these people around me are just crazy people. (laughs) 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 What kind of community have I gotten myself involved in? (laughs) And then it turns inward, right? I, I can't do this. I don't have it what it takes. And that's sometimes when I start to feel the collapse, it's like, oh, maybe everybody else can do this, but I, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing here. Or you lose faith in yourself and in this path and this practice. So again, maybe some of you can relate to this on some level. And tonight what I'd like to do is to share some reflections on sadha, on this faith or confidence, what it is. Talk a little bit about what we're having faith in and also some specifics about how to navigate such doubt, you know, if it, if it arises in your practice. This Pali word uh, sadha comes from the verb uh, Sadahati. And the etymology of it I find really striking, striking because supposedly it literally means to put one's heart into or to put your heart upon something. And I want to come back to this. There is an emotional quality to this confidence, to this trust. There's definitely a place for reason and rationality, but there's also a place for our emotional connection. And also, hopefully, this will something will be something that that uh, reveals itself. Is that it's it's the tricky th- thing about this word faith is that often it's associatively linked with our experiences around the Judeo uh, Judeo Christian tradition, where often that that kind of faith can remain a, a a blind faith, where where it's something that we can never completely understand it. So so uh, there's a kind of blind faith there at least in, in some understandings. And, and what I want to point out, that this is a, a process where there's faith that begins with that and then it, then it gets replaced more and more with a confidence, a deep confidence with what we're doing here and also in ourselves. Faith in what? What do we have confidence in or faith in? 
And again, from the, the discourses. And the Buddha asks, in what practitioners is this faculty of faith? Here, practitioners, the noble disciple is a person of faith, is one who places faith in the awakening of the Tathagata thus. The blessed one is an arhant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the enlightened one, the blessed one. So again, tonight, really clarifying this word sadha, but also clarifying this faith in the awakening of the Tathagata. To actually take some time to, how do you make such a statement relevant to your own life, to your own practice? Because for some people, there might be a relating to this, and others it might be like, wow, I, I hear this, but I can't really resonate with it in some manner. So these, these two facets that we want to explore and then, of course, taking a little bit of time about how to navigate the opposite of this, of, of, of doubt. And in terms of, of taking the next step of really starting to understand this, this particular quality of confidence that I'm uh, attempting to, to point to tonight, I'd like to begin by offering a story that really, if anything, it's a dramatic image that I think encapsulates this quality of faith or confidence that, that has been helpful for me in terms of understanding this in my, in my own path. And it's uh, the story of uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Vedran uh, Smailovich, who, uh, who was a cellist and he uh, lived in Sarajevo during the siege of Sarajevo which took place between 1991 and 1995. There was a, actually a novel, I think, that was written a little bit off his life called The, the Cellist of Sarajevo. And the, the Siege of Sarajevo was, you know, it, it's it supposedly one of the, the longest sieges that ever happened on a city. It, it happened, happened for close to 44, uh, 44 uh, f- close to four years. And what had happened is the Serbian forces had surrounded the city. And so for the people who were living in Sarajevo, it was this uh, continual and random experience of sniper fire, random sniper fire and shelling. And then there was often lack of food and water and, and, and heating during the, the winter. And what uh, Vedran Smelovich uh, decided to do is he... he played the cello, he would dress up in his evening attire and he would go around. Sometimes he would go into uh, bombed out buildings or to play in shelters, bomb, bomb shelters for people or at funerals. So all these different places around Sarajevo that he would, he would play the cello in his evening attire. So over 250 times during these, these uh, close to four years. 
And when I, when I bring this to mind, this act, this act of playing the cello in Sarajevo during that time, what comes to me is, is just thinking that that must have taken a tremendous amount of confidence in the power of playing music in such a situation. It would take a deep faith and a deep confidence to do something like that. A confidence to commit to playing, to commit to creating beauty. And to have the confidence that it will make a difference. And what I want to point out about his confidence, his faith in such an act, is that it doesn't fit into some nice and neat package that you do A, and then that causes B to happen in some simple linear way. It takes a deeper confidence than something so simple. Because here he was playing again and again and again, and it could look like nothing's changing. But he continued because he had confidence in the power of what he was doing. Right? When he played, it didn't stop the siege immediately. It didn't, it didn't immediately feed people or bring back the heating or electricity or running water. It didn't immediately stop the sniper fire or incessant daily shelling. And yet he continued. You know, this act deeply moved many people and we probably could, can't even count the many ways that it has moved and inspired so many people and transformed so many things. And I mentioned this because I feel like this path and this practice requires a similar kind of confidence from us. A confidence that might not fit into some simplistic understanding of we do A and then B immediately happens. Because have you noticed what happens when your mind gets stuck in that of, okay, I'm gonna do A, I'm gonna be mindful and then B better happen pretty soon or I'm out of here. That's what I call a bad day. <laughs> and, and maybe you know that, that, that sense of wanting proof and wanting it now. It'd be cool if it worked that way, wouldn't it? It'd be so much easier. It's just not so. And I think this is the unfolding of faith and confidence is beginning to know in your bones like Vedran Smelovich knew. That this, what we're doing here has a power to it, a transformative power. That might not fit into something simplistic like A happens and then B happens. And just this very simple practice that we're doing, I, I so appreciated that instruction that Rebecca gave us, gave to us last night. Just so simple. Here, now, this. 
So this kind of confidence, this kind of faith. Suzuki Roshi in his book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, speaks to this. He gives a, a striking image. He says, after you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It is not like going out in a shower in which you know when you get wet. It's more like in a fog. In a fog, you don't know you're getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually, it is not. When you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. So there's no need to worry about progress. Confidence allows me to stop looking for the raindrops of this path and practice to come down on me and rather to trust the fog, the field of the Dharma that we're walking through and just allowing it to soak me to the bone. Reminds me of uh, the Zen master uh, Yun Men. Zen master Yun Men, he was uh, really one of the well-known Zen masters from the ninth, 10th century. And some feel he was the most eloquent of Zen masters. And there's a saying that he had, and it's one of these sayings in Zen that has probably been, there's probably been commentary on it now for a thousand years. <laughs> And it's this very simplistic statement that he said, every day is a good day. I know, right? What's up with that? It's like such a basic thing and people have been talking about it for a thousand years. What's up with that? Zen is well known for that, aren't they? But what... What comes to my mind when I, when I think about Yun Men saying this is that I realize when, when I have strong confidence in this practice, when I feel myself wrapped in the Dharma in this way that fog wraps us, every day is a good day. It doesn't matter what happens on the cushion. Why is it a good day? Because I'm practicing the Dharma and I have confidence in it. So if my mind wanders all day long, so what? I'm enveloped in the Dharma. It's going to soak me to the bone. There's no other way.
I, I don't know if my retreats have gotten any better or worse over the years. I don't know. Maybe I understand the Dharma more, maybe not. Maybe that's not the most important thing. Maybe the most important thing is to see that every day is a good day. It's a different frame. Really, just to surrender to this practice of the Dharma. Again, like Vedran Smelovich, just to go out and play. Just that. This is, this is confidence, this is faith. You know, and when I practice in Burma, in, in Burma, the, there's a good side and a bad side to this. The, there's a real emphasis in, in when you practice in, in Burma, Burma around awakening and, and for people to at least taste the, the first stage of awakening, Sotapanna, the stream entry. There's a lot of narrative around that, which sometimes is helpful and sometimes not helpful. And it, it's interesting kind of the gossip around that. It's interesting, the kind of Dharma gossip. <laughs> Some of the Dharma gossip is, the, you know, they, they say that in this model, the, the, the individuals that uh, uh, quickly realize this, this uh, to have a taste of awakening are um, uh, Burmese women from the countryside. You know, more than Burmese men, much more than the foreigners who come and practice in, Bur- in Burma from all over the world. And they say the reason is because they just have deep faith and deep confidence. They go, the teacher says, this is how you should practice. And you know what they do? They practice. (laughs) They don't have all the questions and the complicated stories. They don't doubt the Dhamma. They don't worry if it's a bad day or a good day, because for them, every day is a good day. That's the power of confidence. Because again, what we're doing here in many ways is just so simple. You know, as Rebecca was saying, just here, now, this. It's really just a slight shift in the mind to actually be present. You know, it's just a slight shift right now. You understand my words and then the shift of knowing that hearing is happening. The sound of my voice comes and it goes. There's sati, there's mindfulness. One teacher gave this image. It's, it's kind of like you're in a boat, you know, somewhere, let's say, off California, and, and we're just turning the rudder just a little bit. Because if, if you're in California, you, you turn the rudder just a little bit, that can change the difference. You might end up in Korea or the South Pacific Islands. Just from a really small shift in how the boat is, is, is uh, directed. That's all it is, is just making this small shift in the mind. Just right here. 
now this. Because such a slight shift makes such a significant difference of where we're going over the long haul. So how do we cultivate such faith, such confidence? And back to this this Pali word sadha that comes from this verb sadahati, which means to put one's heart upon, to put one's heart into something. So this emotional relationship. And on this domain, what it reminds me is what's been so important is to to get a sense of what allows me to really be in love with the Dharma. And that's the question I ask you, what has allowed you to be in love with this practice? Not to fall in love. That's what I spoke about last time. We fall in love with all kinds of things. We fall in love with yogis and we don't know anything about them. <laughs> to actually to be in love with the Dharma. What has allowed you to be in love with the Dharma? Because if, if there wasn't some of that there, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> Who would sign up for a three-month course or a six-week course without your heart being moved in some way? So it has, even if it feels like it hasn't, it's there. It's probably brought you here in some manner. So what is it for you? Maybe it's, you know, certain stories that you've heard of practitioners Maybe it's a a teacher that you've had or a community that you're connected with. Or maybe the teachings themselves have moved your heart in some manner to allow you to really begin to deeply be in love with the Dharma. Or maybe, this is really what we come down to in terms of faith and confidence, because of your own direct experience of this path and this practice. How it's touched you directly in this practice. Touched you through the practice of mindfulness or maybe touched you just through the experience of being in silence. And I want to point out that you must be in love with this in some kind of way or you still wouldn't be here. I mean, okay, maybe there's one person that's had really like wonderful, blissful days every day with great samadhi and yada, 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 but probably not. Probably all of you had a crappy day here or there, right? That, that takes being in love. It's like a relationship to weather the storms. 
And so I think it's important to really ask this question of yourself, what keeps you inspired while you're here? And to sometimes remind yourself of that. To allow the passion to be ignited through some of these things you need to remember. So you can remain in love with the Dharma. You know, for me, there's a, there's a demotion, d- devotional aspect that I bring into the practice. And I, and I want to really be clear when I mention this, this doesn't fit for everyone. You know, there's some people have more of a devotional side than others. And so I, I don't want to universalize what works for me. And, and you have to get a sense of what works for yourself. But, but for me, this is why bowing is so important. Because it's, you could say it's a bodily expression of my deep love of this path, of my respect for it. The act of putting my head below something that I truly honor in my life. It reminds me of this. And it helps with this sense of confidence to, to actually move my head below that which I honor and respect. And for others of you, it might be different things that move your heart or remind your heart of this. It might be the chanting at night or it might be simply engaging in this practice day to day. But I, I think it's important to reflect on what can you honor and what way can you honor it to keep in connection with being in love with the Dharma in some manner. Maybe it's not some kind of, maybe it's not even this tradition or just something like the sunset or the sunrise. Or maybe as Henry David Thoreau says, you know, I I believe, he says, or we could say in in this this language, "I I have faith in the forests and in the meadow and in the night in which the corn grows. Maybe that's what moves your practice that you honor, that keeps you going while you're here. So again, that reflection, what's going to allow you to continue to be in love with the Dharma while you're here? And yet even with that, right, doubt can still visit us. And so when it visits you, what to do about it? What are ways to navigate doubt? And the first thing I I, I wanna point out is it's just doing this practice, knowing, knowing it for what it is. Oh, interesting, here's doubt. Oh, doubt's just like this. Here it is, right now, it's happening. It's like this. Just that clear seeing of doubt and being able to name it. And I find it so powerful if I can just get that word out, oh, doubt, because that's so much of the, the task is being able to see it for what it is. 
that simple and direct knowing of doubt, noting it. And yet, wouldn't it be great if it was always that easy? <laughs> Sometimes wish it was as easy as we try to make it sound. But what I find, what makes it so tricky is that doubt does such an excellent job as masquerading as wisdom or discernment. Have you noticed this? This is, this is the slipperiness of doubt. And it can be so confusing of like, how do I tell the difference? Is this really my discernment at work? Is this wisdom, these questions I'm asking? Or is it just doubt? How to figure this out? Because to me, this is really what happens is even if I, I label doubt, it's like, is it or is it not? You know what I'm talking about here? This is the, the trickiness of this, of this hindrance. So for me, what, what I'm trying to sense into is the flavor that it has, the thoughts. Because what I find is that, that doubt has, is immobilizing. It leads to a kind of collapse or freezing within my practice. Because this is what doubt does. Shakespeare put, puts it really quite well through one of his uh, characters, uh, Lucio in his uh, play, Measure for Measure. Lucio says, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. Like for example, in, in the first story I shared with you when I was a Zen monk, this, this sense of collapse in my experience. And what happened from that is that there was this fearing to attempt. There was this not wanting to continue to attempt to do this practice. And that's how it was doubt. It was trying to convince me to roll up the mat, to stop practicing. And that's how doubt is our traitor. It pulls us off the path. And sometimes it can feel like it's keeping us on the path, especially sometimes our minds spin about what's the right practice to do. But it can have this feeling of freezing, of kind of collapsing, immobilizing our practice. Whereas what I find that discernment has a forward movement in it. For example, I come at, across a challenge, maybe I'm getting emotionally overwhelmed. And there's this sense of like, oh, how do I meet this with this practice? And there's some reflection that needs to happen. Oh, interesting, when I sense into my system, like, oh, when I slow down with that, which might be a process in of, of itself, oh, I really need to go for a walk. This is what this needs. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's discernment that sitting right now doesn't fit. There's a questioning about continuing to sit with this experience. And that questioning leads to a skillful response. Oh, more walking meditation this afternoon. That's, that's what's needed. And there's a forward movement in the practice. And of course, I'm simplifying it. I might not feel like I'm 100% in the know about this, but at least I'm, I'm acting on it. I'm moving forward with the practice. Practice doesn't have to be perfect. It's just about engaging in it. 
So these ways of navigating doubt, to note it, to notice its tricky nature, and then beginning to, to notice the difference, the feeling difference of discernment compared to the immobilization of doubt. I now want to wrap around to the, the second question I, I began with, you know, not only making sense of this word sadha and how to navigate doubt, but how to understand this description of of sadha, of, of confidence that the Buddha, the Buddha gives us, of having faith or confidence in the awakening of the Tathagata. What is that to have faith in such a thing? to have faith in the Buddha. I think one way of understanding having faith or confidence in the Buddha is, is to remember you know, the meaning of that word. It's, it's the one who is awake. What is it like to continue to have confidence in simply being awake to your experience? That that's a manifestation of this confidence in the Buddha. Oh, here, here's what I can have confidence in. I have no idea how to make it through this emotion. But what I do know is if I start to become awake to it, to begin to know it, to be with it and feel it, oh, here's what I can have confidence in. I might not be able to figure this situation out, but this is a place where I can rest, being awake to my experience. So in that simple way, having confidence in the Buddha or awakeness. And often it's, it's said to have confidence in the, in the Buddha is to have confidence in this human potential for awakening. I think this is a, a tricky one because there can be so much self-doubt of like, oh yeah, I have confidence that there's a, a, a potential for healing or freedom or awakening, but not for me. That's for, you know, sometimes we idealize, you know, kind of in, a, in terms of colonialism, but idealize those practitioners in Asia somehow, that somehow they're the ones. But what is it to have confidence in your potential? Luther Annie Dillard, I, th- I think, speaks to this in her book, Holy the Firm. And in this quote, she's, she's using this kind of this, this uh, Judeo-Christian framework, but I think it fits for what we're doing here. She asked the question, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Or we could say, who is it that wakes up? Who is it that tastes freedom? And she answers, there is no one but us. There is no one to send, nor a clean hand, nor a pure heart on the face of the earth, nor in the earth. Only us. 
a generation comforting ourselves with the notion that we have come at an awkward time, that our innocent fathers are all dead, as if innocence had ever been. But there is no one but us. There never has been. Have you ever noticed this dynamic in your mind? There's someone other than me that's pure, that's better at all this, more skilled, definitely more innocent. And I so appreciate her correcting that. No, it's never been that way. (laughs) It's always been no one but us. Can you start to have confidence in this human potential to heal, to awaken. And then moving into having confidence in this practice, this practice itself. I remember the, uh, when I went to Burma, I was, um, I was scared. And the reason, one of the reasons I was scared is Again, you probably maybe hear more of these stories. I was going to be practicing with Sada Upandita, and I'd heard all these horror stories about practicing with Sada Upandita, even though I really had a lot of respect for him. And I was just wondering, how am I going to make it through practicing there? So I called a friend of mine who had practiced there actually quite a few times. I said, so any tips about how to make it through these three months? I really appreciated what he said to me. He said, Brian, what you do is you sit, and then you walk, and then you'll probably sit, and then you walk, and then you maybe you'll have a meal. And then after the meal, you'll do some sitting, and then I think you'll probably do a little more walking, and then some sitting. <laughs> it was really such good advice. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, oh, it's that simple, right? Here, now, this. Can you begin to have confidence in that? And to also remember that we're doing this together, that we can have confidence, right? This is this, really this, this confidence in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. You know, as I often say, no one can do this practice for you. And you can't do it alone. No one can do it for you and you can't do it alone. It reminds me of the study that they did in, actually, this, actually during the Bosnian War, they had gone over after the war and they were uh, looking at different modalities for uh, treating PTSD for uh, post-traumatic stress. And so they had like cognitive behavioral therapy and some other um, kind of modalities. And do, do you know what they, they found to be the most effective? The women's knitting circle. Isn't that great? Here they were, these women getting together and knitting their lives back together. 
there's a power about us coming together to practice, to knit our lives back together. There's a support there. Yes, there are the days where you hate everybody. <laughs> That's just retreat. But there's a power to what we're doing here together. And then one other important, such an essential place to have confidence and faith, and that's to have confidence in our difficulties. I rarely have confidence in my difficulties. I'd rather give a Dharma talk about it to tell you the truth. (laughs) It's a lot more enjoyable. (laughs) But it's something that that I try to cultivate, and I think I've said this before, you know, my my word is, is yes. Oh, this too is my practice. But this is what deepens my my practice. (coughs) A poem that really (coughs) exemplifies this. Because I have to share this thought. I want to first apologize for my memory. It's amazing. The Dharma talks I get get so jumbled up in my mind over the years, so I never know what I've taught and haven't taught. So this will be either new or not new. We'll see. (laughs) That's why I always like practitioners that have a lack of memory, because then everything I say is always new. (laughs) Those are the best practitioners. It's a great poem, though. It's by Pesha Gertler, and it's called The Healing Time. She begins, she says, finally, finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. That's such a great first line. It's like, that's retreat, right? Finally, I'm on retreat. Finally, I'm on my way to yes. Oh, and then I bump into all the places where I said no to my life all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again. And where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again. And where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart, and I say, Holy, holy. 
Can you begin to have the confidence, the trust, in the fact that there might be something truly holy about your difficulties and your challenges? Because when we bring this practice to them, they free the heart, they awaken the heart. When we have that kind of confidence, that kind of trust. So, so may our love in the Dharma, being in love with the Dharma, may our uh, trust and confidence in the Dharma lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for a moment here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.